The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. The Gospel of Luke, chapter number 24, for our text reading here today, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 24. Anybody else struggling with the flu either today or have been over the last few weeks? Raise your hand. You said just over the last few weeks. Okay, so not as many as uh, maybe I had thought. Um, I am, man, I'm just, I'm wrestling through it. I have been for about a week and a half or two weeks or so. And so just pray for me. I'm going to do my very best to kind of move through uh, our Bible study here this morning as we continue our series, Saving Christmas. Um, uh, For me, with the sickness, it's kind of come and gone in waves. I I tend to be the type of person, as soon as I'm feeling like 60 or 70%, I kind of dive right back into everything. And if I'm not careful... Uh, all the sickness will come right back again, and then I'm worse off than I was when it all started, and, and that has happened a couple of times. And my in-laws were with us here this week, and uh, I was coughing up a fit in a storm, and, and uh, she, we kind of poke fun at each other, and she leans over, and she says, now, if you die, I'll be sure to say some nice things about you at your funeral. And uh, she said it in a way that kind of made me kind of take back a little bit, but uh, uh, I am sure thankful for my mother-in-law, and I'm sure all the men in here could say the same, amen, and uh, praise the Lord for that. So I'm going to move through this. I've got a special concoction up here. My wife has been making me all sorts of different things this week. I have had everything from aloe vera juice poured into orange juice. Uh, I have had all kinds of grapeseed abstract poured into different parts of my head, and uh, it has worked very, very well. Uh, I can't even think about it. Bone broth has been a big one. I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, but it's awful. And uh, <laughs> so I don't even know what I'm drinking right now. My wife brought it into my office, and she said, drink this. And so I know this is a little bit strange, but uh, in order to kind of move through this this morning, uh, I, just, I might have to pause every once in a while, so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, here in advance. Throughout this series, uh, during the month of December, uh, we've been asking ourselves this question, is the Christmas story actually true, or is it just another holiday fairy tale? Everything about the virgin birth, the messianic prophecies, the star over Bethlehem, the wise men and the magi traveling from the east, I mean, Is all this stuff actually true, uh, or is it just kind of along the same lines as the Santa Claus and the elves and the North Pole, the reindeers? Is it all just kind of bunched up into that type of holiday uh, kind of fairy tale and traditionalism? And, And we're really going to the Word of God and asking ourselves, is this factual, Is there logical evidence that would lead us to believe that what we read about in Luke chapter number 2 is historical fact? Is there evidence? Is there logic that would support uh, these realities? And so uh, over the last few weeks, we have been studying some of the, what is often referred to as the messianic prophecies of Scripture. That is, for those of you who are kind of newer to the church world, The Bible is split up into two parts, the Old Testament canon of Scripture and the New Testament canon of Scripture. 
the Old Testament canon of Scripture was completed uh, somewhere about 2,500 years ago. The Old Testament canon of Scripture was completed. Uh, the way we know this is through things like the Septuagint uh, translation, and that is basically uh, we have in the Greek a translation of the Old Testament that exists about 200, 300 years, even before the time of Jesus Christ. And the Dead Sea Scrolls would validate this fact. And so the Old Testament canon of scriptures uh, was entirely completed before Jesus Christ was ever born. And yet the entire Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, Jesus himself said this on a number of occasions, that the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, the, uh, they speak of me. And so that's the text that we're kind of focusing in on. And we want to ask ourselves, where are these prophecies? If these prophecies are there, where are they? And did they come to pass? And if they came to pass... Who was it that fulfilled them? And we're looking at it from a scientific, logical perspective and, and really seeking to validate the uh, veracity or the authenticity of these messianic prophecies. Uh, inside your service program that you should have received on your way in, uh, there is a Bible study that you can use to follow along through the message this morning. I hope it will be a help to you as we study the Word of God together. Uh, for those of you who are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand uh, here as we read God's Word. We're going to go back to our launch verse in the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 24, and verse number 44, where Jesus declares this saying. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, now we said this last week, but Luke chapter number 2 is often referred to as the Christmas story. So now we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke and we're going to find out why is it uh, that Jesus here uh, wants us to understand the Christmas story and everything that came to pass. And, and here's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 44. And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled. That's an interesting word. It speaks of these messianic prophecies that the prophets and the patriarchs gave hundreds and even thousands of years earlier. And Jesus saying, hey, these things must be fulfilled. If I'm truly the Messiah, then these things had to come to pass. Where were these prophecies given? They were written in the law of Moses, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and in the prophets, both the minor prophets and the major prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Now today we're going to spend some time looking at some of the messianic prophecies found in the book of Psalms. And some people would say, well, how do we know these are messianic prophecies? Because Jesus himself said so, that there are prophecies found in the book of Psalms that speak of what would happen when he came on the scene. So this morning, I'd simply like to speak on evidences to these messianic prophecies. Last week, we spent some time looking at the prophecies that related to the Messiah's birth. Uh, this week, we're going to focus in on prophecies that relate to the Messiah's death, all right? And uh, just like we said last week, it's hard to plan your own birth. Uh, that would have to be something God would be involved in. And in much the same way, it's hard to 
kind of make up the details of your own death. Uh, most of you in this room uh, don't know how you're going to die, all right? It's not something you have planned out. And yet here we're going to see that literally hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus was born, it was already foretold about how he would die. And we're going to study that here a little bit today. Shall we have a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with hearts full of faith. We believe your words because the Bible declares them to be true. However, we are thankful that you give us evidence uh, that supports the teachings of the Word of God that lie outside the realm of your Word. We're thankful, Lord, for the scientific evidence that you allow that supports what your Word teaches. We're thankful for the archaeological evidence that supports what your Word teaches, Lord. Uh, there are so many different types of evidence, and, and yet, Lord, as we look at them, we are uh, bolstered in our faith. We're encouraged in our faith as we seek to find out that though this is a life of faith, it is not a life of blind faith. And there are many things that you use to encourage our faith, to help support our faith, and help us to realize that the words that you wrote to us through the Holy Scriptures are trustworthy, they are accurate, accurate, and we can trust them with hearts full of faith. I pray that you'd bless us during this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. The Old Testament foreshadowings of this coming Messiah started all the way in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first foreshadowing of the coming Messiah would be found in the book of Genesis and chapter number 3. Uh, you find in Genesis chapter number 3 this statement, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. It was not long after that that Adam and Eve uh, there had this to say unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats and skins and clothed them? When Adam and Eve sinned for that first time and they chose to rebel against God, the first thing that God did was give them a picture of the one who would come to ultimately cover all of their sins. And so God slayed a spotless lamb, uh, an unblemished sheep. And he took the coats and then made them coverings. And it was a symbolic picture of what God would one day do when he would send his spotless son to this earth to bleed, to die, to be crucified, and to act as a covering for our sin. And that's what the Messiah would one day do. This symbolic imagery that began in the book of Genesis would play out all the way through the entire Old Testament canon of Scripture. In fact, when the children of Israel would leave Egypt, uh, they would memorialize that event with what they called the Passover. 
This was a season in history where the death angel passed over Egypt and, and only those homes that had the blood of that lamb on the doorpost would the death angel cross over and spare the son in that home. And so from that day, the Jewish people celebrate what is often known as the Passover feast. In that particular Passover feast, God led them to symbolically foreshadow what the Messiah would one day do. And so even within the Passover feast, what the Jewish people would partake in and the symbolism that was represented in that feast and that event was foreshadowings of what the Messiah would one day do on their behalf. And, and so it's interesting as we move through this and we understand that all of these writings, all of these prophecies existed hundreds and some even thousand years before Jesus Christ came onto the scene. Which leads us to ask the question we're going to grapple with again today, and that is simply this, who was the Messiah that the Old Testament speaks of? Has the Messiah come? There are those in the Jewish faith who believe that the Messiah has not yet appeared. And yet we as Christians Though our roots are anchored in the Old Testament, and we would in many ways agree with those in the Jewish faith regarding what took place thousands of years ago, the major difference would be we as Christians believe that the Messiah has come, that the messianic prophecies that were given in the laws of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms have come to pass and were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And these messianic prophecies both speak of his birth, but they speak as well to his death. And so today, let's take a little time. We won't have the opportunity to look at every messianic prophecy that relates to his death, but we're going to highlight some of the ones here and move through these. The first one I want you to see as far as a messianic prophecy found in Zechariah. Uh, the prophet Zechariah lived some 500 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And so this prophecy was given 500 years before Jesus came to this earth. And the Bible says in Zechariah chapter number 11, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me, notice this, my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed my price 30 pieces of silver. And so we see this first messianic prophecy given by the prophet Zechariah some 500 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And here as Zechariah comes on the scene, he foreshadows, he foretells that whoever this Messiah would be at some point in his life would be sold, would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which leads us to look and ask ourselves, whoever this Messiah would be would have to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, here's what's interesting to me. To those individuals who do not believe that the Messiah has yet occurred, it's interesting to think that silver is not a common currency in today's world. Uh, we tend to use a different sort of currency. And so it's interesting to note that the Messiah would come in a time in history 
where silver would be, be regularly used as a way of currency, as a form of currency, which would be the case during the time of Jesus. It leads us here to our first prophecy, and that is simply this. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. So whoever this Messiah would be would have to have been sold for 30 pieces of silver. Was this prophecy fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth? And we're going to find this to be true in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 27 and verse number 3, where the Bible declares, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests, and to the elders. And so we see all throughout the Gospels, uh, there are times that we are reminded that Jesus was indeed betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, while we no longer use this type of currency in our modern day and age, uh, I've had people ask me, how much is 30 pieces of silver? What would that have been worth? And it's, it's really hard to calculate whether we're using the value system of silver or whether like in Old Testament times they would use a metrics of a value system of wheat. It's hard to kind of figure out exactly what that would be worth in modern day terms. And yet from the best we can understand and the best we can kind of figure out if we kind of weigh through uh, how things have changed over the millenniums, we'll find out that really this 30 pieces of silver would have been worth these little coins here somewhere in the neighborhood of about $500. And so we hear that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ literally was betrayed for a price of about $500. And, and I don't know about you, uh, but that's a, that seems a little ridiculous to me that to think that Jesus would be sold out for something as meager as And yet I think we have to ask ourselves the question today, in the day and age in which we live, what what are people selling out Jesus for? There are folks, even in the day and age in which we live, and while they know the truth of the gospel, they know the reality of who Jesus Christ claims to be on an intellectual, cognitive level, they know who Jesus claims to be. But they will not become a follower. They do not commit their lives to him and put their trust and faith in him and him alone because they find that there are other things that are more attractive to them. And and in some regards, it's almost as if they're selling out that reality for something less than who Jesus Christ truly is. And my prayer for the Ambassador Baptist Church is that there would never come a time where we would sell out on Jesus for something that would make our lives a little bit more comfortable. That we would sell out on the reality of who he is, well, because we can make a little bit more money. We would sell out on his agenda because, well, our lives would be a little bit more comfortable. Or sell him out because maybe there's a way of living that we could kind of acquiesce to that would make our lives more of what we would want it to be. But rather to simply say, you know what? I believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and there is no cost too great to follow him for. So we see the first prophecy. But let's continue moving along here. Is there another prophecy that speaks of what would happen around the time of his death? We'll find our next messianic prophecy in the book of Psalm, chapter number 22. The Bible says in Psalms 22, verse 18, 
they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. King David, about a thousand BC here. And we see that a, a thousand years before the time of Jesus Christ, there was a prophecy that was given that spoke of this reality. Now, as you read this verse, you're going to find that it almost seems to be contradictory in nature uh, until we look at the account in John chapter number 9. Notice what the messianic prophecy says. It says, they part my garments among them and, and cast lots. Well, which one did they do? Did they part the garments or did they gamble for them? How, how did, which one was it? Are they speaking out of both sides of their mouth? What exactly is taking place here? And, and it is a little confusing. And, and to be honest, uh, the Jewish people, as they read this for a thousand years, they were probably a little confused. Uh, they would read and, and wonder, what exactly does this mean? What, what's going to happen? Is his garments going to be parted? Or are they going to cast lots for him? How is this, this going to play? And I'm sure in, 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 in times they would get together and maybe even debate exactly how this would play out. And then we come to the Gospel of John, chapter number 19, and we get a fuller picture of exactly what took place. Here it is, nearly a thousand years later, Whoever this Messiah would be would have to have his clothes both parted and gambled away for. And we find exactly that fulfilled in the person of Christ in the Gospel of John, chapter number 19. The Bible says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts. So literally they took and made four parts to every soldier a part. So each one of the soldiers there... We can assume there were four, received a part, and also his coat. Now, here's a little caveat. The coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, so these four soldiers said, let us not tear it or rend it, but cast lots for it and find out whose it shall be. And so now here, notice what it says, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. And so this is another messianic prophecy fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we see it played out historically here because the coat itself was made of one piece, rather than destroy it, it probably had some value to it since it was excellently woven. What it probably happened here is they decided not to destroy it. Instead, they gambled for that part of the coat, thus fulfilling the second prophecy that we're looking at today. And I say all this to remind us of the reality that these prophecies that were made in this instant a thousand years before we can trust because they came to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples had no way of manipulating this fact in history. There was no way they could have contrived this to be. This was just something that happened that was foretold about nearly a thousand years before. You can also find this spoken of in Matthew chapter number 27 and verse 35 if you want to do more study on the fulfillment of this particular messianic prophecy. But let's keep moving on. 
Psalms 22 gives us the third messianic prophecy that we're going to look at today. The Bible says in Psalm chapter number 22 and verse number 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaw. So whoever this Messiah would be, he'd be thirsty. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. In Jewish times, dogs would refer to the pagans or the Gentiles who would be surrounding him. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands... And my feet, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Notice that little phrase in verse number 17. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now what's fascinating about this particular messianic prophecy, found almost a thousand years before Jesus Christ ever came on the scene, is the reality that corporal punishment The normal form for corporal punishment in this day and age, a thousand years before the time of Jesus, would not have been crucifixion. Now, we tend to think in our modern view that crucifixion was something that always happened. But crucifixion was a Roman thing. It was instituted when the Romans took over Jerusalem. Uh, Before that, capital punishment was done by stoning. Uh, That's why when you read in the Old Testament, when people were put to death or when somebody would die, they would all often happen through stoning. They would take stones and cast it upon them. So it is very interesting here that a thousand years before Jesus died, before Jesus was born and died, uh, that it was foretold of his death. But it's very interesting that nothing in his death speaks of the fact that he would be stoned. The average Jewish individual, if they were going to foretell and they thought whoever this Messiah would be would have to die, it would only make logical sense for them to think that the way of his death would happen through the means of stoning. In fact, at this point in history, the art, if you want to call it that, of crucifixion had, never, had not even been invented yet. Uh, the Romans conjured up this form of the death penalty, and it was very um, advanced for its de- day and age. In fact, it was used as a torture uh, device. The way they would hang them there actually made their life be prolonged more than maybe it would be in other situations. What would happen is they would have something that as their feet were nailed down, they'd literally have to pull themselves up for a breath of air and then in their weakness they'd sink back down and the form of crucifixion would make it so that it would be very difficult for them to breathe. And and so it was more than just a death penalty. It was a way of torturing those that they were killing and it was something that was invented after the time of David. And so what's interesting to note in this passage is here we see what is being prophesied in the book of Psalms was a form of death penalty that had not yet even been invented. And yet here the prophet, as it is being spoken, declares that first he would be compassed about by dogs. The Jewish people would often refer to Jewish people in a slang type of way as dogs. Uh, in our modern culture, and in, in some 
different parts of society. People might look at people of different ethnic backgrounds and they would have slang words that they would use to speak out against these people of different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, Racial division is not new. It's been going on for centuries and it was going on even back then as the Jewish people would declare the Gentiles to be nothing more than dogs. And so here in this passage when they say dogs there uh, compass me about, they're literally declaring that whoever would put them to death would be Gentile in nature, not Jew in nature. And that's the significance of that particular statement. They pierce the hands, they pierce the feet. So whoever this Messiah would be, would have to die in the form of crucifixion. Hands being pierced, feet being pierced. And so I would ask maybe our Jewish friends who would say the Messiah has not yet come. If the Messiah has not yet come, part of what the Messiah would have to do would be die. It would be pretty crazy to think that in this modern day and age, the way somebody would be put to death by a government would be through crucifixion. It's hard to imagine. It was more common in that day and age. And so it makes sense there uh, during the time of Jesus that he indeed would be living during the time uh, that these prophecies were coming to pass. So who was it? Uh, Who who was put to death through uh, having their hands pierced and their feet pierced? And we find in the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 27... What I believe to be a fulfillment of messianic prophecy regarding this particular uh, prophecy. The Bible says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 27 and verse number 35. They crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Notice that phrase, they crucified him. They nailed him there to that cross. And so we see now another form of crucifixion, another form of prophecy now being fulfilled in regards to his death. Is is that all there is though? And I think you'll find that there's even more. Notice what the prophet Isaiah says nearly 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter number 53 and verse 9. The Bible says he made his grave with the wicked... And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And so the next messianic prophecy that we find written in the Old Testament canon of Scripture was given by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter number 53, where it says here, he made his grave with the rich in his death. All right, so whoever this Messiah would be, at the time of his death, would have to be buried among the rich. Well, we find in the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 15, a fulfillment of this prophecy in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, where it says in Mark 15, verse 46, And they brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock. And rolled a stone unto the door of that sepulcher. Of course, Joseph donated there a burial spot for the Messiah to be buried in. And we find that here Jesus again, even in his burial, was fulfilling messianic prophecies that had been given some 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. 
Of all the prophecies, one of my favorite and one of the most brilliant, fascinating of them all comes when we find in Psalm 16 verse 10 where it says, For thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will I suffer thine holy one to see corruption, which brings us here to our final messianic prophecy, and that is simply this. The Messiah would be raised from the dead. Whoever this Messiah would be would have to be one who uh, would, of course, uh, find uh, themselves betrayed by 30 pieces of silver to have their clothes then gambled away. They would have to be crucified, then buried with the rich, and somehow raised from the dead as a mark of authenticity that this indeed was the Messiah. So anybody in this day and age claiming to be the Messiah will have to die in the form that the prophecies foretell of and not just die, but then of course rise from the dead. This was fulfilled, Acts chapter number one, where the apostles say, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. So after the crucifixion, after the cat of nine tails, after being nailed to an old rugged cross, after all the torture, after his passion, notice this, by many infallible proofs. That's the word the Bible uses. He proved himself to be alive after he had died. It goes on to say, being seen of them 40 days. And so for 40 days, the Messiah, after his death, burial, and resurrection, walked and lived among the disciples. Notice what it says, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If you'd like more references regarding this particular messianic prophecy, you could go to Matthew chapter number 28, verses 5 through 9. You could look Mark chapter number 16, verse number 6. You could go to Luke chapter number 24, 4 through 7, and the gospel of John chapter number 20. And you'll find many of these references and these passages speaking of the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies that we spoke of this morning. So let's kind of bring this home for a moment. What's the point of all this? Our series is called Saving Christmas. And in a day and age where Christmas has become more about commercialism and materialism and traditionalism, it's my prayer that we as Christians would try to some degree rescue, save Christmas from a lot of that. Now, I'm not against Christmas traditions. I'm not against buying gifts for one another. And I, I, I think to some degree they can serve as uh, symbolic gestures, especially to our children, to help them emotionally experience what Christmas is all about. And so I think it's a wonderful thing to have Christmas traditions. And I think it's a wonderful thing uh, to buy gifts for one another to show, uh, represent the ultimate gift that was given to us by God the Father. But I do think it's very important that as we move through this season, we do so in a context of understanding what truly is the reason for the season and to rescue, to save Christmas from so much of the commercialism and so much of the materialism that takes place, not by necessarily doing away with all of it, but by elevating the true nature of what Christmas is among those we come in contact with. One practical way to do this is in a day and age where it's becoming politically incorrect to say Merry Christmas, maybe just taking and saying, you know what, Merry Merry Christmas when you're at a, a store. 
Be bold enough to speak the name of Christ, you know, when you're out and about. Don't be ashamed to, to, to really insert Christ back into Christmas. I don't often get on hobby horses. I'm going to pause for just a moment. What I'm about to say is not gospel truth. I'm going to give you a preference of mine. Is that all right? I don't often do this, but I'm going to right now. Every once in a while, I'll be driving down the road, and I'll see somewhere where somebody puts X must. I'll just say for me, my preference, uh, I that, doesn't, that doesn't fit super well with me. And I, I understand why sometimes it's done. People run out of a room on a piece of paper and, and to try to squeeze it in, they, they put that in there. And I get guess to some degree, and, and if you do that, I'm not saying you're going to hell or something. That's not my heart. But what I am saying is, my, let's keep Christ in Christmas. He is the reason for the season. And in, and in a day and age that's moving further and further away from Christ, let's take the opportunities that we have to insert Christ into Christmas. Now, if you've already sent me a Christmas card and somewhere on the Christmas card it says that, don't, I'm not going to be offended, all right? But I, my heart is just to say, as believers, as people who believe that Christmas is more than just on par with Santa Claus, do you realize that there's some people, they see Jesus and they see Santa Claus and they know no difference between the two? And so as Bible-believing Christians to save the symbolic nature of Christmas, oh, that we would take the opportunities to insert Christ into Christmas, to not be afraid to say, Merry Christmas, to look for opportunities to make Him what our celebrations are all about, and praise the Lord for the fun traditions. And, and I think it's good to, to create traditions and, and create uh, uh, aesthetics that would allow a child to enjoy a special time of year. I, I don't think we have to get so crazy. And I, I think, you know, we're, there, there would be different family preferences that would be played out in these type of things. And, and you're, the, you're the prophet priest of your home. And so your traditions might be different than my traditions and, and vice versa. But what I am trying to say is above all, as Bible-believing Christians, I believe above all, we should put Christ at the very center and, and praise the Lord every once in a while if there's a holiday song sung here or there. But my, let's take the opportunity to sing Christmas carols that talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful thing that is to, to speak the name of Jesus. The prophecies that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, while they range from incredibly significant to very minor events... Each and every one of them came true in the person of Jesus Christ. So why? Why did these things come to pass? The Gospel of John tells us why and how. It says this. These are written. What's, what's written? The Gospel. The account of the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This was written that ye might believe that Jesus is Notice the phrase, the Christ. This was a Greek term for what in Hebrew would be referred to as Messiah or anointed one. So in the Hebrew, anointed one was Messiah. In the Greek, in which our New Testament was written originally in, 
anointed one was Christ. And so we find here what the Bible is saying, that ye might believe that Jesus is, we could literally say, the anointed one. These things were written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That believing ye might have life through his name. You might be here today and you might be struggling with whether or not you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to study the Gospels. This is one way to look at it. While Christianity is a faith, it is not a blind faith. It is a faith that first and foremost was given to us by God and we can trust his holy word. But praise the Lord that there are evidences even outside of this book, scientifically, archaeologically, logically, that through the prophecies and through these different sources help us to understand that while it's faith, it's not simply blind faith. We can trust what God's word has to say. And if you're still wrestling through with whether or not Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God, I would encourage you to study the Gospels in contrast to these Old Testament messianic prophecies. Do a study. There are over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And you will find that in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that through those 300 messianic prophecies were all fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. So to the believers here today, let me simply say to you this and encourage you, admonish you with this. If what God said in the Old Testament canon of Scripture, if what he declared hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years before Jesus Christ came, lived, and died... If everything that he spoke of in the Old Testament came true and was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, if his words, his promises were true about the Messiah, I want to encourage you with this reality that the promises that he gives to you as a believer are just as true. If what God said about his sending there that first, the Messiah for that first time and those things came to pass then we can trust what God says about the second coming of Christ to be just as true. And we can anchor our faith in the reality that just as our Messiah came as a servant, as a lamb, he will come again as a lion, as a king. And we will there have that opportunity to see and be with him forever. And those, because we saw fulfillment in Old Testament, we can trust that the prophecies that are still to be about his future coming are just as real and just as true. And the promises that he gives to us are just as real today. And I hope, if nothing else, as a believer, that your heart is encouraged, that your heart is strengthened, that while we have a faith, it is not a blind faith. And ask the Lord, say, increase my faith. You might be sitting here today and you're saying to yourself, I I need more faith in my marriage to to be what God wants me to be. I need more faith for this area of my life, for my finances, for my spiritual walk. I need God to give me greater faith. Here's what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
If you're struggling in your faith, can I give you a prescription? Run to this book. One of the promises of God is that when his children run to this book and they saturate their heart and their mind in his word, that he will increase their faith. He'll do it. He promises it. And we can be, we can be convinced of that reality. Shall we have a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father.